So we pick it up in verse 14 tonight of chapter 23, where God says this in the context of talking about the Sabbath years and these things. It says, three times you shall keep a feast to me in the year. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. You shall eat unleavened bread seven days as I commanded you at the time appointed in the month of Abib. For in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty. And the feast of harvest, the first fruits, or what we call Pentecost, of your labors, which we have sown in the field, and the feast of ingatherings, which we also call the feast of tabernacles, at the end of the year, when you have gathered in the fruit of your labors from the field. Three times in the year, all your males shall appear before the Lord God. So, really interesting passage, because it gets that bookend. This happens occasionally in the scriptures where uh, an instruction will come forth and then an expansion of that instruction and a reaffirmation of that instruction. And we see that here. Verse 14 says, three times you shall keep a feast to me in the year. Three feasts. And then we're told again, three times in the year, all your males shall appear before the Lord Yahweh at that feast. So three times, three times, these three feasts, the first two close to each other in the springtime, and the other one later in the autumn is when these feasts would happen. To this day, those who practice Judaism still recognize these feasts in Israel and so on and so forth. The Jewish people that lived there in Israel celebrated as a nation these feasts. And then their cultural feast, obviously even Israel, the nation this day, and to Jewish people around the world who follow Judaism in that way. And of course, as Christians... Uh, followers of Christ, we can look at these principles and, and rejoice in these things because we know that everything in the Old Testament is a shadow of things to come, but the fullness is Christ. And even as we look at these things tonight, it's a shadow of things to come, but the fullness really is found in Jesus Christ. For we've said this time and time again, Jesus said, do not think that I came to counsel the law of God, but to fulfill it. And Jesus fulfills the Ten Commandments perfectly, morally. He lived a sinless life, born of the Virgin Mary, and died in our place with that sinless life, the acceptable substitution for our sins. Then, as a, as a citizen of the nation of Israel, Jesus was a perfect citizen. He, in fact, said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar, and to God the things that are God. And no matter what controversies people tried to pull him in, he just simply was the perfect citizen. In fact, when he's put to death with capital punishment, crucifixion for capital punishment, he, there was no guilt. Caesar himself said, I find no guilt in this man, demonstrated through Pontius Pilate representing Caesar and the global government, if you will, at that time, the Roman government of which they were under. And so found innocent from him by civil government, this government of Caesar, the government man, and then found innocent by the centurion and everyone around. Everyone declared he's innocent. The, Jesus went to the cross for being the son of God, which, of course, is what the high priest called blasphemy at the time. So Jesus was the perfect citizen. He fulfills the law of God, being the perfect citizen, perfectly. But then all those feasts, the Passover lamb, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which we even see here tonight, it's all fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He's the bread of life. He said, your father's ate man in the wilderness, but I'm the bread of life that comes down from heaven. And so we covered that as a topic a couple weeks back when we were in that part of the scriptures back in 16 and 17. So Jesus, as we come to this text, which is the religious law, we see that Jesus fulfills it this these three feasts. He fulfills these feasts. And it's been said that the Feast of Tabernacle looks forward to the time when Christ will reign on the earth during the thousand-year millennial reign, which is not really the focus of tonight. But just know this, Jesus fulfills these things. Everything from Genesis to the New Testament, 
is a shadow of things to come. The fullness is Christ, and we keep that in mind. So we don't go back and keep these feasts as some sort of Christian behavior in the New Testament or the New Covenant, but nonetheless, they're there with beautiful principles for us tonight to think about as we look at this text. So three times we'll keep a feast. Now, this is kind of neat to think that three times a year, God called the men of Israel together to stand before him. That's a good thing. It's accountability, and res- it's accountability and responsibility for each individual male. Now, remember, when he gave the instruction for the Feast of Passover and Unleavened Bread, he held each man accountable to take the lamb for his family. So I can't piggyback on my neighbor's lamb, and you can't piggyback on my lamb. We all have the responsibility to get our lamb, sacrifice that lamb, and put the blood of that lamb over our doorpost. And Unleavened Bread went with that. So the individual accountability was there right from the beginning. And we also know back with the Feast of Unleavened Bread and Passover, they go together. Remember, they go together. That it was the new beginning, a new calendar. Like your day planner, like you, it was like March or April in your Hebrew day planner. And God said, no, you got a new day planner. This is the start of your year here. You need a new day planner if you kind of follow my insight when I'm sharing there. But individual accountability. And here's individual accountability. We all know that we're going to be accountable to the Lord individually. I'm not going to give an account for you, and you're not going to give an account for me. We're going to give an account for the time God gave us on this planet, the purposes that he had for us on this planet, and we're all going to stand before the Lord and give an individual account of our lives. So it's kind of neat to think that three times a year, the men of Israel had to stand before the Lord and give an account before the Lord at different seasons, which is what we're going to look at here in a moment. And lest you be thrown off by it's just the men, we shouldn't be because we know that even in the Old Testament, we just studied this in the civil law last week, that God is a defender of women. If you recall a couple chapters ago, he really stood up for the women and their rights against being abused or misused by the men that would take advantage of them. So we've already covered that in the civil law. And we know in the New Testament that there's neither male nor female, but we're all one in Christ. Now, there's an equality, but there's a distinction in order in the home. And so it would make sense that here the men give an account because they're the ones that are going to give an account for their home. Even as in Adam all sinned and died. Eve sinned first, but she was under her husband's covering, and therefore Adam was held accountable for it. So we're not told in Eve all sin. We're told in Adam all sin. Because Eve was deceived, but Adam chose willfully to rebel against God. And so that accountability works that way. So we need to understand with the genders, there is the equality of the genders with Jesus Christ. There's, and the distinction of the genders as well, obviously, in the purposes of the genders that God's designed in his word and made clear. But here, the men would give an account. But as we think of the New Testament, we think women are going to give an account because every woman is going to give an account for her life before the Lord. Jezebel gave, is good, gave an account or is given an account before the Lord. Everyone's, you know, every woman that ever lived, Mary, the mother of God, gives an account before the Lord. She called Jesus her Savior. She rejoiced in her Savior. She gives an account. All women give an account to the Lord. All men give an account to the Lord. And all 8 billion people on this planet who have just come through COVID-19 and starting to come out of it in various ways and capacity on the planet, we're going to give an account to the Lord for our lives and the timeline he's given us and what we've done with him. Whether we have many days or a few days, we've certainly shared the planet in the most unusual time, and we'll give an account for it. So in the context, we see that three times a year, these people of covenant, the men, have to give an account before the Lord on the three feasts that he's decreed. So let's take a look at the distinction of these feasts and how it really speaks to us about our own lives in the end of May 2020 at a very unique time in human history. Now, first one, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Notice what he says, because you know, each one of these things, he says something interesting that gives us our application, so pay attention. We're going to give an account. That's our topic. And it says, none shall appear before me empty. Verse 15. None shall appear before me empty. 
This makes me think immediately of Matthew 25 in the parable of the minas, where the master gives one mina to one person, two minas to another, five to another, and the one that had the one mina buried his mina and did nothing with it. The one with the two got four, and the one with the five got ten. And then there's an accountability. Now, in Matthew 25, the context is the return of the Lord Jesus Christ and give an account to the Lord. And in that parable, which speaks of accountability and eternity for the life you live, that's, that's a proper context of Matthew 25, because Matthew 13 and 31, by which that passage is in, is bookended, both deal when the Lord returns. So it's the context. Of, of, it's a parable that, it's an earthly story that tells us a heavenly meaning about giving account to God. And in that, the one with five that got ten, the master says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter the joy of your Lord, more will be given to you. The one that got two got four, he says the exact same thing. It's the exact same commitment for two getting four. So it's not the quantity, but the quality. And well done. But then the third one, who buried the mina, Jesus said, you hid your treasure, you should have got my interest. He got nothing. And then Jesus said this, to him who has, even what he has will be taken from him. In other words, in that parable, standing before the Lord, which is what it represents, there's a person that did nothing with what God gave them. And they stand before the Lord empty-handed. They did nothing. Also, we can look to the story of Elisha with the king when he said went to the king, Elisha, and he said, look, it's the arrow of the Lord's deliverance. Shoot it out the window. And the king's like, okay. And he shoots the arrow out the window. And he goes out to go get the arrow. And Elisha says, it's the arrow of the Lord's deliverance. Strike the ground. And the king's like, and that's kind of odd, like strike the ground. So he takes the arrow and he strikes the ground three times. And Elisha said, you should have struck the ground many times. And then God would have given you many victories. But because you struck the ground three times, that's exactly what you're going to get. Three victories over the Syrians. How we sow is what we reap. If we sow little, we reap little. If we sow much, we reap much. And if we sow nothing, we are nothing. And we have nothing on the day of the Lord. And that's what God says here. God says, don't you dare, and he's holy, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. When he gave, spoke to them, the dark cloud came down Mount Sinai, and everybody knew he's holy, and don't go near that mountain. Don't let your donkey touch that mountain. God is holy. And Jesus Christ died on the cross to reconcile sinful, condemned humanity under his wrath with holy God. Jesus is the mediator. There are no others. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And God is holy. And we're going to give an account to our holy God. And he says here, don't come before me in my covenant relationship with you with nothing. So the first of the new year, in the Jewish year, the men would all go, in the case of coming from the Sea of Galilee or Nazareth, you'd come about 60 miles. You'd walk two days, like the old California missions, two days journey. I walked 30 miles in one day when I did my prayer walk back in 2008 before the election, praying for our country. And I got up to 30 miles a day. And so I know what 30 miles feels like. It's, you know, it's a, it's a lot to walk 30 miles in one day. Alex did part of it with me one time. So that, that was a hard haul, man. Mar- Maricopa, that's a, that's a hike. But it's a lot. So let's just say we're coming from the Sea of Galilee, like we're fishermen like Peter, John, and James. And we, we would walk 60 miles. It would take us two days to get to Jerusalem for the feast. 
And, we, and, and you get there, and then like in a sense, you're like, you're accountable to the Lord. So you're like, here we go. Three times a year, we always go. Paul, even in the book of Acts, when he made plans, he would make plans to be in Jerusalem for what? For the feast, because it was in his culture and his background with his uh, Jewish history. It was a natural calendar, like Thanksgiving and Christmas and Easter is for Americans, and Fourth of July, right? Or Memorial Weekend this weekend, or even Labor Day weekend. We, we moved that way, and that's how it was for them, but in a covenant. And he said, don't you come before me empty-handed. So once a year, the beginning of the year, like January 1st, he would call his people together and say to the men, stand before me. Now, who would want to go before the Lord empty-handed as a man in a covenant? Can you imagine in all the churches in America, if we all had to show up January 1st, the first service of January, and stand before the Lord and and give an account for who we are on that day? Don't come empty-handed. They were people of a covenant, and God's saying, don't come empty-handed. You don't come empty-handed. Feast of Unleavened Bread, of course, Passover went with it. You would have to pick out a lamb that week, and you'd slaughter the lamb. So you'd have to come under the blood. That was just goes with it. We know that. We know the blood of the lamb goes with this Feast of Unleavened Bread. But seven days, no leaven. So you're not going to show up with leaven in your bread. The unleavened bread speaks of a consecrated and set-apart life. So they're reminded the first week of every year of their life, the men of God in the covenant, and now we could say the women of God in the covenant, would be reminded that we're set apart. We are not like the Hivites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites, or the Edomites, or the Moabites. We are a holy people. We, he bears us on eagles' wings. We are his special treasure, and we are set apart. How dare we go to Jerusalem empty-handed? So we come before the Lord once a year at the start of the year when the day planner begins for our new year on the Jewish calendar, and we come based upon the covenant that he established by the blood of the lamb, the Passover lamb, and by the unleavened bread. We would come with faith, which they always did from Abel on down. So we'd come with faith like Father Abraham, like Mother Sarah, and we'd come with faith, husbands and wives and children, telling the stories of the Old Testament of God's faithfulness, and we would come in faith. And we'd come under the blood, and we'd come with the unleavened bread, and we would not come empty-handed. We'd come with personal character and transformation that's happened in the last year because we're men and women of faith. We'd come with the testimony of what our life did in impacting other people in our community, how we were good citizens for the living God, how we treated our neighbor, because the law is all summarized in this, that you'll love your neighbors yourself. So we would come with testimony of others, how we carried ourselves and how we interacted. We'd come as good citizens respecting the king and honoring the laws of the land. We would come with a testimony of faithfully going to the synagogues or whatever, the local gatherings to study the Torah and understand the law and the prophet Isaiah and the readings of Isaiah and Jeremiah. We would come. We would come with increase in our faith. Oh, it might be a good year where there was a lot of produce. It might have been a year of a famine, but you'd still come. And you'd need to come with faith in the year of increase, and you'd come with the faith in the year of famine. But you'd come, and you would not come empty-handed. I think it's wonderful that once a year, God held his people accountable, the men, to show up and have grown in their faith, to have grown in their character, to have grown in their service, and to have grown in their fruit. I think that's a wonderful thing. And that's something we can all take to heart. What if God took inventory at the end of COVID-19? as we come out of these restrictions and we begin to go back to church, we begin to go back to work and we begin to see traffic on the freeway again. What if as we all get back to what was, won't be the same and I certainly don't want to be the same for me in my relation with the Lord because I've grown in this time and I don't want to go backwards, I want to go forward and I hope it's the same for you. But what if we all had to give an account to the Lord at what we did in 10 weeks of COVID-19? Would you come with increase? Did you grow? 
Did you use your time wisely? Did you take in the right information to build up your faith? Or did you fill your mind with poison of poisonous people? Did you pray for others? Did you pray for those over you and beside you like it says in 1 Timothy chapter 2? Did you honor all people like it says in 1 Peter? Or did you just kind of entrench yourself with some ideologies contrary to the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ that's inclusive for every tongue, tribe, and nation? What did you do? And what's your account on this day? Because we're coming out of it. You know, I've said for 10 weeks, God forbid I don't grow during this time. We've never had a time like this. God forbid. And if you didn't grow, you got just a few days to grow. Because you're going back to work. The government's going to keep sending you checks. And church is going to be starting up. So get it now. Once a year. Every year. Accountable to have increase. May God help you look in the mirror. And help me look in the mirror. To see increase from 10 weeks. The most unusual 10 weeks in my 59 years on this planet. It's coming. It's all coming back now. You need to be a better version of you in Jesus' name on the freeway, in the supermarket, on the sports team, in the PTA, in the mops, in the homeschooling group, in the community, in society. And it must be more about Jesus and the lamb, the blood of the lamb and the unleavened bread than anything else. That needs to be our identity. Because God reminded them our identity every year, once a year, you come, and this is all we're talking about, the covenant, the blood, and the consecration once a year. So let's just kind of make this the beginning of a new year, right? The blood and consecration. We can't stand before the Lord with a decrease of what he wants to do in our life. We need to stand before the Lord once a year with an increase. I always say, you know, we want a better version of me or you on January 1st in 2020 than there was in 2019. And I hope that would apply at such a time as this. It's an unusual time. The second thing we see was the feast of harvest, the first fruits of your labor, which you have sown in the field. Wow. Well, that's interesting because the Bible tells us it's God who wills and works in us for his good pleasure. So we are his workmanship. And really what we're sowing Once we give our life to Christ, we're still in a life of faith and obedience and service unto Jesus Christ. The servant of all is is the greatest in the kingdom. So we're sowing humility, the fruit of the Spirit. Pastor Anthony Dean did a wonderful study where he talked about the fruit of the Spirit being the only work that there really is a work. Because you don't have that work, you don't have any other work. What good is a work if your work isn't more of God's love in your life? What, Like it says in 1 Corinthians 13, you're just a clanging symbol. Like the, the work has to be in us of character be like Christ, love. And then other works can come from that. But if we're not being transformed by love, then everything else is just a clanging symbol. It's a cadence that's offbeat. We don't want that. So it's God who wills and works in us for his good pleasure. And they were reminded, and they were very much in an agri-society, so they prayed for rain, God gave them rain. They prayed for no locusts, and God kept the locusts away. Like they, were, they couldn't just go to Albertsons or Vons or Mothers or Trader Joe's. Like It was very... You know, very real in an agri-society. Even if you're a farmer in Nebraska right now, it's very real where the weather has such a pattern on, on impact on how you might make money or lose money in your personal wealth in farming in agri- agriculture society. But he says here, in the feast of the first fruits, that would be Pentecost, which you know is um, 50 days essentially after unleavened bread. So you go for unleavened bread, you go home, you have two months, and you go back again. That's what you do. You'd go, it's like the distance between 
Halloween and Christmas almost. You know, it's like that kind of a gap, and then you, you go back. So you would go back to Jerusalem again a second time, but now you've got early fruits coming in. So you have your first fruits. Now, these first fruits, they belong to the Lord. So this is interesting. God's, God gives the increase. We understand that. And in their covenant, they were taught to depend upon him for everything that they got. We understand that. And we know that it's God who wills and works in us for his good pleasure. He's the one that's transforming us from glory to glory to become more like Christ by the work of the Spirit in character and working through us to emulate and demonstrate Christ to a a hurting world around us. Recently reading about Ivan Prokhanov, I've mentioned earlier, the Russian pastor leader from the 1800s and early 1900s who was persecuted under the czars and then under the Bolsheviks, the Soviets, the communists. He talked about that they never had a political identity. It was very important for them as a church, the evangelical church at that time. They only had one Bible college in all of Russia that was evangelical. He was the, the pastor with 19 students. And he led the movement. They only had one uh, periodical magazine. He was the editor. <laughs> it's, just, it's an incredible story. But he said it was really important for them that they didn't have a political identity because they would be persecuted by any side to the right or to the left. The former czarist, who were the, the white army, and the, the leftists, who were the red army, the, who became, you know, the Soviets became the communists. They weren't originally called communists. They are called Bolsheviks. And which means bigger, bigger, get more. Bolshevik is, is, is from, it's a Russian word that means get more. It's large. And so they wanted it large. And so anyways, they made very clear in all their things that they were uh, apolitical, not political at all, that they were all about Jesus Christ and the gospel. And they actually printed things where they said, our sole purpose is to glorify Jesus Christ and the gospel and not identify with any political party because we want to be able to, identif- we want to, be able to serve and minister to Bolsheviks and Tsarists. We don't want to lose ministry with anyone because both will be hurt by the other. And these parties, take, they take power by violence and killing and wrath. But we advance the kingdom through love and humility and service and sacrifice. So it's really important that we can minister to a Tsarist and a Bolshevik equally. Wow, what a concept. The gospel for everybody. And they said, and they were attacked by both, both sides, the polarizing right and the polarizing left. But they were very determined to stay, make sure that everyone knew that the evangelical Russian believers in 1917, at the tail end of World War I, the beginning of the Russian Revolution that went on for years, that everybody knew when you're dealing with a Christian, they were apolitical, not of any political identity, but they were followers of Jesus Christ that would minister to you unconditionally, regardless of your political affiliations. It's amazing. Wow. So when we think about fruit, when we're abiding in Christ, all that fruit is for Christ. We're, we're servants of the kingdom of God, and we're, we're to be able to minister to both sides of the pendulum of humanity wherever we might go, and to be above reproach at all times. Our identity is in Christ, not a political party or political ideologies. So they always raise the gospel message and the message of Christ serving humanity. And they believe if a person could be transformed from the inside out, then they would be a better citizen. Which I've heard my pastor Brian Burson say for 33 years since I got saved and discipled by him. That you can't have social change without internal change. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. Because again, we talked about that God compares human beings apart from Christ to animals. Governments to animals and people to animals. We act like animals. But we're restored to the lost glory through the rebirth of being born again through faith in Jesus Christ, that now the daughter of Eve actually is transformed back, actually forward to a more glorious Eve than the glory Eve even lost by being transformed from glory to glory as in a mirror, by becoming more that godly woman that the Bible talks about in the New Testament. And the man is the same thing. I'm not trying to equal what Adam was. 
I could never, well, first of all, Adam was perfect and sinless, so I'm never going to equal that in the human experience, nor is any other human being. But Christ, the second Adam, died that we could become like Christ, not like Adam, the second Adam. Adam lost his glory. We're going to glory. Adam's was a fading glory until he died, like took 900 years, but he died. Ours is an emerging glory, so we're being transformed from glory to glory. So our kingdom is that way. So the fruit that we're producing, the first fruits, is when we've given our life to Christ and people see the fruit of the Spirit and they see us forgiving and they see us giving and they see us letting things go instead of being wrathful. They see us minding our words instead of just spouting out everything we think. They see us filtering things. They see us walking away from things that we don't need to be engaged in. That's what they, and they see us being bold and courageous for what we're called to be bold and courageous. As Pastor Chuck Smith used to say, we've all got battles to fight. Just make sure they're the Lord's. And then that way, he'll fight it for you, and you don't have to fight it. So it's important to understand these things. So once a year, not for the blood and for the unleavened bread, but for the fruit. You're like, you've got fruit in your life. You've been transformed. And so you come before the Lord, and it's like, I've been blessed by the Lord. God is good. Here's my first fruits. We read that the firstborn belong to the Lord. So all your increase, the first of your increase, all belong to the Lord. It's not a tithe. It's everything. Don't make God 10% of your life. Make him everything. Jesus, Jesus on the cross is not 10% of your life. Jesus risen from the grave is not a tithe. Jesus on the cross and risen from the grave and sending tongues of fire on the day of Pentecost, this feast, is about the fullness of Christ. Everything is Christ because Christ is all that fills all in the universe and he wants to do it in our life. So the first fruits is just acknowledging it's so silly to reduce God to a tenth of your life. That's less than going to church once a week. It's, it's everything. He's everything. And the first fruits reminds us as we acknowledge him with all of our increase that he is everything. He is our life. He's the author and finisher of our faith. He's everything. Everything I have is the Lord's. All of it. Everything. The pe- my health or bad health, good health, it's still the Lord's. The breath that I have, it's the Lord's. This day, I'm alive. There's a purpose. I'm dying. It's still the Lord's. It's all the Lord's. He's not done. It's the Lord's. The days appointed for us, yes, for us were yet unfashioned, uh, but they're appointed for us, we're told. And they're numbered, and his thoughts are more than the sands of the sea. It's all good thoughts, a future and a home. So if we've got another day to live, it's from the Lord. It belongs to the Lord. We never reclaim a day and say, well, this is my day. It's all the Lord's. So the first fruits is all the Lord's. The first fruits is the character of Christ being produced in our life as we grow in faith in him. The first fruits is how he's blessed us and given us favor going forward in the life of Christ, in the life of faith, and what comes from that, and that we give him glory for it. We don't take the glory, we give him glory for it. It's, it's acknowledging him with our increase. It's being all in. Not parsing in, but all in. That's the first fruits. The first fruits, we're saying, God is good. We give you thanks and praise. You gave us the rain. You give us the increase. It's of you and by you and for you. And everything that's good in my life is a result of you. And you're over all of it. So here's my first fruits. I just got increase, and we're giving it to the Lord. God wanted them to understand, male and female, household alike, even to this day, that the one who sows bountifully reaps bountifully. And by, you know, holding them accountable to acknowledge him in their first fruits, he was doing them a favor. See, we're, we're a little bit more under grace. We're not under the law, we're under grace. So God's not going to make you stand before him once a year and say, you know what, I've given you everything. Do you think you want to acknowledge that? He'll let you do what you want to do. But he wants to get all the glory from the good things he's done in your life. He wants to get all the, within you, in character, and he wants to get all the glory for the good things that he's done through you to bless other people. 
that's his rightful place. Because everything he does is life. Everything we do is death in the flesh. The flesh is death. The spirit is life. That's what the scriptures make clear. So in being accountable to stand before the Lord, with the first fruits, we're saying, God, it's all you. Everything good in my life is you. And you're over all of it. So here's my first fruits. It's all the Lord's. But by acknowledging the beginning of it, early on, every season, we're just recognizing, God, you gave me this job. You gave me this house. You helped me handle that situation properly. You helped me to forgive this person. You helped me to let that go. It's all the Lord's, and he gets all the glory. That's the testimony, that you're all in, and everything you are, everything you breathe, every cell of your body, everything that your fingerprints touch, it's, it's all the Lord's. And he wanted them to know that. And we need to know that. A man can receive nothing. A woman can receive nothing unless it comes from above. Now, that's the calling of God, John the Baptist, talking about Jesus, but that principle is true. Because every good gift comes from the Father of light from whom there's no shadow of turning. We thank him, we praise him, and we acknowledge him. You cannot give the Lord. It's his universe. It's always about the heart. It's never about the money. It's never about the money. It's always about the heart. The Lord. Then the third and final thing we see the end of the year, when you have gathered in the fruit of your labor. So you're gathering in the fruit of your labor. You're gathering in the end of it. You see, the blood and the unleavened bread starts it. The first fruits acknowledges that he's over all of it. And then in the end, you're sealing the fruit. You're literally sealing the fruit. Like Paul said in Romans 15, you are bringing in all the fruit. And when you brought in all the fruit of that year's increase, it's almost like when you do your tax return and you look at your W-2 or your 1099s and all those things, you put it all together and you look at everything that God gave you. Now that's financial. It's very limited because that's just only one way to measure the fruit of your life, obviously. But like, it's an accounting, right? I mean, isn't that what tax returns are? It's an accounting. Like now you have to have your proof of health insurance that you had. So you get all these things and you put them together and you give them to your accountant or maybe you do your own turbo tax or something like that. But it's an accounting to Caesar, human government, of all your economic increase. That's what it is to the penny. Now, I mentioned this, but when I worked for Billabong in 1999, they would shut down the warehouse when I was coaching the American junior team. But they would shut down the warehouse for a couple weeks and they would do inventory of every single thing they had. They literally counted every keychain, every wax comb, every t-shirt, every bikini, every jacket, every wetsuit. They did a total inventory of everything they had. They took an inventory of everything they had. Well, this is the inventory of everything we have. There was a feast in the autumn where, by the way, they lived in a tent for a week. So God made them camp out. Like, we do glamping. A three-star hotel, that's camping out for me. I just like, I like air conditioning. I like a pool. You know, I just, I don't know. Like, I just, I'm not a camper. My wife loves to camp. And all my kids love to camp. Although I don't think, Hannah would probably be most like me. She's kind of a glamper, not a camper. But, you know, Lee and Jaga, they're campers. You know, they're millennials. They're like, they're like the camper and the sprinter van. They love all that stuff. You know, like chaos with a campground. You know, like, oh, that's my worst thing. You know, like, oh, just no. And, but for seven days, they live in a tent. Why? Because while they gathered in everything and acknowledged everything God gave them, at the end of their journey for a year, God would make them live in a tent to think about how they're pilgrims, that they're going to leave it all behind. The tent reminds you, you don't take it with you. Abraham and Sarah and the patriarchs looked for the city which had foundation. His builder and maker is God. 
the man that owned all of Israel never built a house. He bought a piece of property to bury his wife, and it was a family cemetery in future generations, but he never built a house. He's a tent dweller. It's a pilgrims. What does Peter call the believers in the New Testament? Pilgrims, sojourners. So when they'd look at all their fruit and take all their inventory, everything they had, God would say, now remember, you're pilgrims. You're going to leave it all behind. Now Solomon in Ecclesiastes said, hey, in case you don't realize this, when you die, you leave it all behind. So in the Feast of Tabernacles, as they rejoiced over all that they had, they lived in a tent for a week to remind them, you're just passing through. You're, you're in a sojourner. You're a sojourner. You're just a pilgrim. You're passing through. You don't keep all this. It's all the Lord's. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The Lord give it. The Lord take it. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Like you just, the ingathering. So on the Feast of Tabernacle, when they lived in a tent for a week, whether they liked the camp or not, it'd be like, well, I'm a pilgrim. Man, we've been blessed this year. Or it's been a tough year. It's been a famine year. But they would know their total inventory of everything they had. Now think about this, this closing thought. When we stand before Jesus Christ and give an account for our life, it will be the fullness of the feast of ingathering for the New Testament believer. Now, why do I say that? Well, in 1 Corinthians, we're told that we run for an imperishable crown, not a perishable crown. The world gets their inventory, and it comes and goes, and whatever. They leave it behind. But we're told that, using the athletic model, that we run for an imperishable crown, not one that decays. Then we're told also in the same book, 1 Corinthians, that all, when we give an account on that day, capital D day, where we stand before the Lord and all things are tested by fire, and that which is precious remains that can stand the test of fire. And let me tell you, as we wrap up tonight, what will stand the test of fire? Your faith, your fruit by the Holy Spirit. Character transformation by the Lord in your life, that'll stand the test of the fire. Loving others as Christ loves others, that'll stand the test of the fire. Energy and efforts that you expended to expand the kingdom of God, that will stand the test of the fire. Motives to serve others, even if it doesn't go your way, that will stand the test of the fire. Good motives with a bad result, that will stand the test of the fire. It will. I mean, Rahab's in Hebrews 11 for lying. I mean, like, but the motive was good. Not that I'm saying lie, but you understand the context. Because we're told that the fire will reveal the thoughts and the intents of the heart. What we did and why we did it. See, it's the heart. So as we think about the Feast of Ingathering, think about us standing before the Lord Jesus Christ by ourselves, and they would do it once a year, every year, but we'll do it in the end of the age. We'll stand before the Lord, and we'll see all the fruit that our life was and is. What we let Christ do in our life for character of Christ, what we let Christ do through our life to the blessing of other people, did we, did we, did we reciprocate, return the love of God that he showed us? We love him because he first loved us. Did we respond with that love? For the greatest command is you'll love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Is that going to be shown that we were worshipers, that we were givers, that we were believers and trusters, dreamers, that we believe we attempted great things for God because we expected great things from God? The vertical and the horizontal. Did we truly forgive others as Christ has forgiven us? Did we love others unconditionally as Christ died on the cross for those that he never even responded to those who reviled him even when he hung there on the cross for us? Did we demonstrate those things in how we treated our neighbors? Did we treat the stranger kindly like I taught on Tuesday night? Do you remember that we're a stranger? That no one's just born in entitlement but that we've received everything that's good from the Lord and we should thank him for the good things and we should praise him in the difficult things? That's going to stand the test of fire. That we loved people and our motive was love, 1 Corinthians 13, because love never fails. So if we're loving people, 
that's going to stand the test of fire because God himself says, love never fails, and the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts so the Holy Spirit has been freely given to us. So you keep on loving, you keep on forgiving, and you keep on blessing. That's what you do. And as you do that, you keep on sowing, and you have vision for the kingdom, and you're open to do new things and take new steps of faith, where without faith it's impossible to please God. But as we take steps of faith and we look to make 2, 4, and 5, 10, we're doing so loving God, loving others unconditionally, and letting God work through us. That'll stand the test of fire. Our in-gathering, can you imagine like Pastor Chuck's in-gathering? I mean, we measure that by ministry or Billy Graham, but really what about the in-gathering of people that are just, there's nothing profound about their life other than that they were faithful for 20 years or 30 years. It's the quality, not the quantity. So who knows what the in-gathering is for you on the day of the Lord Jesus Christ? But I can tell you, it's personal growth with the Lord in the things of the Spirit. It's Loving the Lord, not because you have to, but because you realize it's the most natural thing you're created to do and giving him honor and praise and glory. My dogs can't praise the Lord, but I can because we're created to praise the Lord. That's, we're there for that purpose. And to love others the way Christ has shown us to love others. And this is the fullness of ingathering because that'll be the fruit that we gather in for all eternity that no one can take from us and it'll stand to testifier. Three times a year, with great distinction, every year they had this. So since we don't, let's just say, as we come out of COVID-19, Memorial Weekend, let us think about these three things. The blood of the lamb and the unleavened bread of consecration. The first fruits that reminds us everything is of the Lord and by the Lord. And the ingathering that reminds us that there's an accountability to stand before the Lord and have full inventory of what the legacy of our life was because we don't get to do it again. All eyes on Jesus with faith in him.